In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. His robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance, one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. One of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal from the altar, touched my mouth, and said, Your guilt has departed, your sin is blotted out. I heard the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. This is the word of the Lord. It was a Friday morning in Dallas. For days, Gail and I had known that our president, John Kennedy, was going to be in Fort Worth on Thursday night. He was going to speak at a breakfast in a Fort Worth hotel Friday morning. He would then have a short flight over to Dallas Love Field on Air Force One. There would be a motorcade with him and the governor of the state of Texas, we talked about going to that parade. We had never seen a live president before. But Gail had a job at the alumni office. We really needed the money. And I had five courses I was taking in the seminary, two on Tuesdays and Thursdays, three on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. I was in my third class of Friday morning. It was just before noon systematic theology when someone came running down the hall screaming, they've shot the president. That's all we knew. Didn't know if he was dead or alive at that point. He'd been shot. Our professor quieted everyone, said a prayer with all of us, and said, hurry to those you love. So I rushed to where Gail was. The alumni office had heard the news. They said they're closing down. She and I packed our belongings to drive to the two little country churches I was pastoring on the weekend, 175 miles away. We had the least expensive little Volkswagen Beetle they made at that time. It didn't even have a radio in it. So for three and a half hours, we drove not knowing if our president was dead or alive. We didn't know who had shot him. It had only been a year since the, mission, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis when he and Khrushchev had bluffed coming into Cuba. We were hoping Khrushchev would blink first, and he did. And the Russian ships turned away, and there was no war at that point. Now, just a year later, by the time we got to our little churches, we heard, of course, the president was dead. We've never forgotten it, nor have you, if you were living November 22, 1963. Isaiah did not forget when King Uzziah died. It was in 742, before the Common Era. They, too, had a huge enemy just to the north of them called Assyria. Here's a trivial pursuit question for you. Who was the king of Assyria that started the first great expansion? Tiglath-Pileser. Remember him? Tiglath-Pileser had come to power in 745, and three years later, King Uzziah died. Twenty-two years after that, in 722, the Assyrians would swoop southward into the northern tribes and absolutely obliterate them. It was a difficult time. Dr. Walter Brueggemann, who will be our Barton Clinton Gordy presenter next year, in his commentary on this passage said, What did Isaiah do when the king died? 
he went to the temple. And this brief story of what happened there, he said, has become a model for right worship. A model for right worship. Let's take a look. First of all, he went to the temple and there he saw the Lord sitting on a throne, he said, with little seraphs. The word seraph is not translated for you into English because no one knows exactly what Isaiah was trying to describe. It simply means in Hebrew, fiery creatures, some kind of little fiery creatures that flew around the throne. But he saw the Lord high, sitting on a throne, and smoke filled the room. Can you see why so many churches have incense? Smoke filled the room, driving out all the unholy things and preparing the way of the Lord. So the first act of worship is always supposed to be adoration and praise. One walks in. We spend a lot of money building churches with high, high ceilings. So the tendency is when you walk in to go, wow, like that. If you've ever been to St. Peter's in Rome, what else can you say? Wow. St. Patrick's in New York City and so many others. We at Boston Avenue have such a church. There was a time in Houston they were trying to build churches as fast as people were moving into the city, and they started trying to economize by building little churches that looked like 7-Eleven stores. It didn't inspire anybody. I remember one author saying in the Houston Chronicle, well, we're building little churches that look like 7-Eleven stores, and the big money is being spent at the malls. Go to the mall. That's where the marble is. That's where the brass and bronze and gold and silver, where all of them are. We're showing our children what's really important, our grandchildren what's really important. It's at the mall. We build churches that look like 7-Eleven stores. Because the first reaction you see is supposed to be, wow, surely the Lord is in this place. This must be a place where the Lord comes often. I told you I had a course back in seminary taught by Dr. Ronald Sleeth called Preaching Values in Contemporary Literature. And one of the things he kept emphasizing to all of the students in his class was, many of you are going to be appointed to little towns where they have no live theater. But you can read a play even if you don't get to see it actually performed. There's a new one out I would like to see. It's called Freud's Last Session. Mark St. Germain, playwright. He imagines an evening in September 1939 when C.S. Lewis called on Sigmund Freud in his London office. Sigmund Freud was in London because, being a Jew, he was in mortal danger in, in Nazi Germany. And he had managed to get out while he still could and had set up an office in London. C.S. Lewis, as you know, was an Oxford University professor who had grown up in the church, the, the Church of England, but had come to a real faith only in mid-adulthood. And Mark St. Germain has written a play just for these two people, a discussion. C.S. Lewis cannot imagine why Freud doesn't believe in God, and Freud can't imagine how a person could be bright enough to teach at Oxford and believe in God. Freud is dying of cancer as well. He would die within a year. 
So they're talking about really important things. The dialogue goes back and forth for an hour and a half, 90 minutes, just two actors on stage. But when the curtain falls at the end, neither has changed his mind. And one critic said it's because they had both, long before, made up their minds. So when you walk in, do you see this as a place where God comes regularly to meet his people? Or is it just something somebody's begging you to do on Sunday morning? That you walk in and look and say, wow. Number two, adoration and praise is to be followed by confession. When I saw the Lord and smoke filling the room, I said, woe is me. I am unclean. And I live among a people who are unclean. A few years ago, the Methodist Church, I mean the larger Methodist Church, decided to bring a pastor, not even a Methodist, from Phoenix, Arizona to Tulsa to teach us how to do ministry, the new way. And so I went to support my denomination. Uh, This fellow walked in. He looked like Solomon's rendering of Jesus. Had beautiful curls all down on his shoulders and a very full beard. But then he had a fluffy sweater, some black slacks, and some very expensive loafers. He proceeded to tell us how to do church in Phoenix, Arizona. Now, at that time, the Phoenix Suns were really playing great basketball. So the prelude to worship at this church was the fight song of the Phoenix Suns. He said, we don't have time for some of the things you waste time on. We get them in and get them out in 45 minutes. That's all we can get out of people, 45 minutes. And so as he went on, uh, when do you baptize? Oh, we don't have time to baptize. When do you take hold of communion? Oh, we don't have time to take hold of communion. And, of course, a prayer of confession was out of the question. It's too negative, he said, too negative for people to have to confess. Have you seen Susan Jacoby's new book? It's called Never Say Die. And in her book, she says, her generation, the baby boomers, are in absolute denial about what lies ahead. She said, we've bought into the myth and marketing of a new old age. But let me tell you how it really is, she said. If you make it to 85, there's a 50-50 chance you will have severe dementia by that time. If you make it to 85, you have a 50-50 chance your husband will already be dead. In this country... People over 85, two-thirds are women, one-third men. So she said, you're not going to know what day it is, and you've lost the mate that meant more to you than anybody else in the world. You need to be realistic, she said, with all these word games we play. We never say die, but that, in fact, is what finally happens to all of us. I may have told you this, can't remember for sure if I did years ago. 
My very first intern from Perkins School of Theology was a fellow named Bill Gandon. My second was Dr. Bob Long, who will be here next, uh, in two weeks. Uh, while I was still in Beaumont, they were my interns down there. Bill Gannon was first. He was really bright, ha already had a bachelor's and master's in electrical engineering from Rice University, and then felt that God was calling to be a preacher. I asked him, are you sure? Do you know what a master's in electrical engineering is worth from Rice University? He said he knew. So he was very, very smart. One day, I was standing in the hallway talking to him when the oldest minister on our staff came back from the hospitals. I had made hospital calls the day before. I knew we had a woman who was very near death. And so I stopped and said, John, how's Miss Smith? And he said, she expired. And this young intern said, expired? Expired? Magazines expire. People die. Come on, John. You can get this. People die. People die. They don't pass away. They die. And John said, yeah, yeah, you're right, of course. A couple of weeks later, we had a similar scenario. John's coming back from St. Elizabeth Hospital. I'd seen one of our men the day before, critically ill. And I said, how's Mr. Jones? And he looked and saw this young intern staying, standing there and said, Mr. Jones' subscription ran out. Okay, Susan Jacoby is saying we never say die and we don't want to confess our sins. But that is the second major act of worship. Adoration and praise and the realization we are not yet what we were created to be. We know better. We know better. Dr. Klaus Westermann, a great German theologian, in his commentary on this portion of Isaiah said, there's no cozying up to the God Isaiah saw in the temple. When you get close to the Almighty who created the heavens and the earth, you're in real jeopardy. It's time to confess your sins and be willing to be turned. Number three. That, in fact, is what's affirmed next. If you confess your sins and are in love and charity with your neighbors, we say in our communion service, and intend to lead a new life, intend to lead a new life, you will be forgiven. God will forgive you. By his mercy, by his grace, he will set you right. Dr. Mary Schertz is a seminary professor her specialty is New Testament. She said, though, my parents kept me close to the church all my growing up years, enough that I felt called to be a professor at a seminary. One of my aunts always bugged me to death. My Aunt Phoebe, every time I would see her when I was a kid, she'd say, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? And I just didn't like the way she asked it, and what it seemed to imply to me, that she knew she did, and she was pretty sure nobody else did. I just didn't like the question. So I've never, ever used that question with anybody. But she said, this last year, I've had an interesting experience. The seminary where I teach, Mary said, asked me if I would teach a course in continuing education. And they thought perhaps it would be helpful 
in this particular class to have only women who are out there in the field now doing ministry. A woman professor and all women in this particular class. Maybe they would say things to the professor they might not say in front of men about their experiences. So she said, we, we announced the course, and surely enough, the room filled. And we decided that we would meet three hours at a time, rather than more times in the week. Three hours at a time, and that we would follow the Gospel of Luke. In Luke's Gospel, there are so many stories of people who approach Jesus. I mean, whether it's a woman who's been ill for more than 20 years, or a centurion whose slave has died, or Zacchaeus who's supposed to come down out of that sycamore tree, or the two women who go to the tomb on Sunday morning after Jesus was crucified. There are enough of those stories in Luke, she said, to take up the nine months. So we agreed that every time we gathered, first thing we would do is we'd have a prayer, and then we'd assign parts. Who's going to read each part in this particular story? And they were willing, happy even, to take a part, except nobody wanted to read Jesus' part. They just felt a little strange doing Jesus' part, so we'd have to sort of appoint somebody to read Jesus each week. Well, she said we went through story after story. After we had read it, each of us reading parts, then we would do what theologians call sitzim leben, that is the setting in life. Uh, where was Jesus? What was he doing? Who were these people? Uh, what time in his ministry was this? Why is Luke telling this story? What is Luke hoping it will convey? And then we would have a little break, she said, and then we would ask, now where does your life intersect a story like this? Have you had an experience that's anything at all similar to what we've just read here? Well, she said the semester went along. We always closed with a, a couple of hymns and then a prayer. We got to Easter. That conversation of the two women as they arrived at the garden tomb on Sunday morning. And they're reprimanded for seeking the living among the dead. And I said to them, I didn't mean to be flippant, she said, but it just sort of popped out, well, nobody has to be Jesus today because he's not in this story. And she said, by the time it got out of my mouth, I felt hot tears well up in my eyes. And I blinked, and they spilled over onto my cheeks. I missed him for eight months. Every week he'd been there. In story after story after story, he was there making a difference, making a wonderful, powerful difference for good. And that Sunday morning, he wasn't there. I've had a personal relationship with Jesus, she said. I've had a personal relationship. I really experienced God's being in a real human who lived, anguished, died. Was raised, but really died. You can have that relationship. He wants you to have that relationship with him. Number four, scholars call this fourth part the commissioning, or the sending, if you would. I heard God saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? 
You understand that what Isaiah understands is that God is saying, I need somebody who will stand up to the new king and tell him, we need meaningful reform. Isaiah said, send me. I'm ready. Dr. Maxie Dunham is pastor of Christ United Methodist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. He had a long and very successful pastorate there once before. And then they went through a couple of changes, and the church has not done well. It's crippled right now. And Dr. Dunham is coming up on an 80th birthday, and he was asked, would you go back to Christ Church and see if you can get that thing back together, and then we'll appoint somebody else to come and see what he or she can do. So Dr. Maxie Dunham is back at Christ Church after all these years in Memphis. He told a story about a time in Mobile, Alabama, when the firemen were still using horse-drawn water carts. No trucks yet. Horse-drawn water carts. And then when everybody else started buying fire trucks, Mobile, Alabama bought fire trucks too. And suddenly there was a story in the paper about these horses. What's going to happen to them? And people started calling in and saying, I want one of those. I want one of those horses. And one family said, we have this beautiful little pasture. We have a warm barn. And we will give more love and care than Dan, one of the old horses, than Dan's ever had in his life. We will love Dan till the day he dies. And surely enough, that family was awarded Dan. So they put him into that beautiful pasture, lots of running water, beautiful place there at Mobile. And one day the men of the house said he heard the fire siren. He wondered what's on fire, but he heard the fire siren fairly often, and so he didn't do anything about that until he looked out the back window toward the pasture and Dan was gone. And he said, I walked out to be sure he was gone. And on a hunch, I drove over to that fire, and there he was, standing right beside that beautiful new fire truck with all the flames and all the smoke and the heat. He was standing right there. And Dr. Dunham says, you see, that's what Dan had been taught to do. When you hear the alarm, you go to the fire. Amen.